1: Toronto saw three traffic-related fatalities within the span of just four hours this past weekend on Saturday night, At 11.30, a female pedestrian was struck and killed on the Don Valley Parkway near Riverdale Park East. And shortly after that, uh, a 23-year-old man died when his vehicle collided with a TTC bus in Scarborough. And in North York, a 32-year-old died while crashing his motorcycle at approximately 3.25 in the morning. So is this a function of reopening and the fact that people just aren't used to increased traffic or uh, is it time to rethink vision zero right now? I'd like to welcome police constable Sean Shapiro. Hi. Hi
2: Libby. How you doing?
1: Fine. How are you
2: doing? Well, thanks.
1: So is when you see something like this, what do you think?
2: Well, you know, unfortunately, a lot of these events come down to, uh, uh, to similarities in, in that, uh, you know, these are late at night, uh, speed, some of these were a factor, whether people are following the rules of the road. Uh, one of these involved a, a vehicle running a red light. Uh, so it, they seem to be uh, very individual, and yet the common theme is people aren't following the rules in all these situations. Now, I can't speak to the why uh, there was a woman on the uh, of the highway, uh, but it, regardless, the the result was uh, was very unfortunate.
1: Yeah, it's a bad idea.
2: Certainly. Uh, And again, no idea why she was there, but uh, it's certainly not a place you want to be. It's not safe. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm-hmm. This case of a a 23-year-old colliding with a TTC bus, uh, it was reported that he wasn't following the rules of the road. Sometimes I have my doubts. You know, frankly, sometimes I see TTC buses doing things that leave me shaking my
2: head. You know, all drivers can be uh, guilty of making errors. Uh, in this particular situation, it was the driver of the Acura that ran the uh, red light at the intersection. And, uh, uh, you know, there, there seems to be a, a, a lot of going on. There's people who are distracted by various things in their vehicles. Whether And I can't say whether this was or was not distracted related. Uh, there are a lot of things going on. and People are, are attached to their devices in a different way. Um, and those can be contributing factors. In many cases, we also see alcohol. Uh, tend to, uh, or drugs to, that contribute to these things. So all in all, you, you know, you made a comment as to whether or not it's, it's, uh, uh, related to reopening. I don't think it is in this particular situation, but, uh, it, it is unfortunate that we're not getting more compliance on the road and it's leading to these tragedies. Uh,
1: I have a question. Uh, so here's something weird that happened to me yesterday. <clears throat> Sorry, my throat's a little dry. Um, we're in Liberty Village. King Street is open for vehicles for part of it. So I was—I pulled up to a red light. It, I was in the right lane. It, it's a long light, as many of them are. Everything was fine. And then suddenly, while I'm still at this red light, a TTC, uh, a, a streetcar pulls up. It wasn't there when I pulled towards the intersection. And he opens his door. And I'm thinking, what did I do wrong?
2: (laughs) So, when they're servicing the stop while you're in the middle of it, I've seen it as well. Um, And now you're stuck because the doors are open and you can't move.
1: Yeah. Well, except I was at the front of the thing. I mean, he eventually closed them. If I had pulled up there, I would have been wrong. But, you know, don't they have any responsibility?
2: (laughs) Well, you know, it's a funny situation. in terms of legally, uh, he's entitled to to service a stop, uh, and and you're obligated to wait while those doors are open. Is it courteous? That's a different story.
1: Well, it's not. I'm waiting, right? But I'm already there. I'm in the right lane. He's in the left lane, right? And he opens his door, and there's would be no place for people to get on.
2: No, I understand entirely. Uh, I I can't speak to what their policies are, uh, but uh, it, it's it's. Uh, to be a situation of courtesy. Could, could he have waited to service the vehicle uh, or to stop until after you left? Possibly. Uh, but, uh, you know, th- at the end of the day, uh, I, they, they've got to go to their schedule as well. Uh, I, th- I don't know if there's a right answer exactly.
1: Oh, okay. I hope it doesn't happen again. Uh, but <clears throat> do you expect an uptick in problems, basically, because, you know, there is a lot more traffic on the streets?
2: We are seeing an increase in traffic, at least from what we've seen for the last couple of years. But, uh, you know, in terms of is that going to lead to, uh, to problems? We can't forecast that, uh, at the moment. We saw an increase in issues, uh, during the time when there was less traffic. So, uh, hopefully, uh, we, we won't see that increase. We, we, uh, uh we are dealing with different things though. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, moving Ontario's, uh, more safely act is coming to play as of July 1st. So we're now, uh, you know, dealing with, Stunt driving differently, uh, but uh, and, and we're hoping all in all we see better behavior. But we can't predict uh, whether or not it's going to increase as a result of reopening. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, I, it it again it boggles the mind with this stunt driving, and and sometimes I, I hear it and and in the middle of town.
2: We, we hear a lot from uh, from residents who are unhappy with uh, the, the loud noise from vehicles. We are uh, out. We have uh, the Vision Zero enforcement team that is out, focused on uh, driving behaviors uh, that we see leading to serious injury and death on our roadways. And that's the the speeders, the aggressive drivers, uh, distracted drivers, and impaired drivers, and the uh, a lot of modified vehicles that have exhaust systems that are making a lot of noise. Uh, so we have officers that are that are actively. Uh, trying to enforce and reduce this uh, this behavior uh the uh, and, and hopefully the, the new uh consequences that have come into play will help motivate drivers who are currently breaking the rules to 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 not and that's uh, the fact that now stunt driving will carry a 14 day impound of your vehicle in the event that you're stopped and charged for stunt driving uh and that's in, in excess of 50 kilometers an hour uh in any road that has a speed limit over 80 uh but in, in, in another new uh introduction, is that if you have a speed limit under 80, it only takes 40 kilometers an hour over the speed limit to uh, to trigger a start driving charge.
1: Wow. Um, uh, we saw some staggering numbers of tickets issued. Can you fill us in? I,
2: I don't have stats in front of me as to how many have been issued recently. They're, uh, they're, they have done a tremendous amount of uh, uh, of work in, in terms of the Vision Zero enforcement team issuing tickets and going into areas that are high Uh, high issue. They go to different divisions every day, focused on those. those, But of course, I don't have statistics in front of me for those.
1: Okay. Um, And again, what is your advice to people like heading into the summer, there's a huge amount of construction and uh, there's more traffic on the roads?
2: You know, at the end of the day, my best advice is always plan ahead, take your time, enjoy your day, if you leave it to last minute where you are suddenly stressed out trying to make it to the time constraints that you set for yourself, uh, you, you have a, a, a often a desire or pressure to exceed the speed limit, to break rules, and, and possibly be stressed out to the point where you're not paying attention to what you're doing. But we need to protect those vulnerable road users, cyclists, motorcyclists, pedestrians, and, and drivers. Uh, and, and all road users need to be aware of what's going on. And when stress kicks in, people do some things that they ultimately regret later on.
1: Uh, Final question. A lot of the Vision Zero plan involved redesign. Uh, Where are we at with that?
2: You know, that's a great question for the city uh, in terms of redesign. Uh, Our our, uh, play has mostly been on enforcement and education, and we've been doing great work on social media, engaging with, especially with younger folks on TikTok, where we're very active, uh, (laughs) and, and talking about the reduction uh, or, or in terms of uh, the, the effects of speeding, the effects of uh, of all of these uh, rules and why they're set, they make the road safer if they're followed. Uh, in terms of redesign, uh, I, I know that we've been making changes slowly, and we're talking about reducing speeds in, in a number of areas, and that's that's the major theme: theme of reducing speed, uh, whether it be voluntarily or by way of uh, changing speed limits. And I think it's great.
1: And and have you seen any issue with cafe to and uh, people are you know basically uh, on the roadway eating? <laughs> Uh, I haven't
2: seen anything uh, come up this year. I know at the beginning there were some uh, situations where uh, uh, folks were uh, possibly coming into contact with barriers. Uh, this is going back some time. But at the end of the day, if you're driving around Cafe Teo, please be aware and please be slow and safe because there are people who are, uh, you know, simply having a meal and you want to not put them at risk. And, uh, uh, you know, a few minutes added to your drive isn't worth putting someone's life at risk.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Police Constable Sean Shapiro with Toronto Police Traffic Safety Programs. Thanks.
2: Thank you. Take care.
1: All right. That is all the time we have for today. I will be back here on Thursday, and that's all the time we have. You're listening
0: to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. Just as our vaccination rates are rising, the economy is opening up and travel restrictions for fully vaccinated Canadians are eased, we have news about a brand new variant of COVID-19, the Lambda. This as countries around the world are reporting an increase in cases fueled by the Delta variant. So what does it all mean? I'm going to give the numbers out again. If you have questions for our. Doctors coming up, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Dr. Alon Vaisman, Infectious Diseases and Infection Control Physician at the University Health Network, and Dr. Kerry Bowman, a bioethicist with the University of Toronto. Welcome and thanks for joining us.
2: Happy to be here, Libby.
1: Okay, Uh, what can you tell us, Dr. Vaisman, about this new variant, the Lambda, from Peru?
3: So uh, we know that this variant is the dominant strain that's been in Peru, and we know that Peru has experienced a particularly hard pandemic over the last few months, and they have one of the highest, maybe the highest, uh, death per capita as a result of COVID. So it is certainly concerning to know that that's the case. We don't have much data on how uh, effective the vaccine is, so what the vaccines that we're using here in Canada are against the Lambda variant. We do know that there are no cases here in Canada, and there's very few cases outside of Latin America or South America of the Lambda variant. So um, it's a little bit early to tell, and we, we, we don't yet know to what extent it's going to be a problem here in Canada.
1: What's their vaccination situation in Peru?
3: Um, it's It's nowhere near as good as where we are in terms of Uh, single or double vaccinated in Canada, United States or UK. Um, We only know that in South America, there's predominantly used um, the Sinovac vaccine as opposed to the Pfizer or Moderna or AstraZeneca being used here. And they do know that there is some degree of efficacy against this new variant, but perhaps reduced compared to the other variants.
1: Uh, Dr. Bowman, how worrying is this for you? Well, you know, for me personally, it actually is in the strange way
4: that I was scheduled to, I work in uh, the Amazon and I was scheduled to go to the Peruvian Amazon uh, by late August or September. Uh, I don't think I can do that um, because there's a lot of questions related to this variant. So, you know, and the question would be, you wouldn't want to get all the way there and then find out that at a later stage, because it's not yet a variant of concern, It's or it's a variant of concern, it's it's not I'm trying to remember the distinction between those two categories, but it's, it's one that they're, they're keeping an eye on rather than one that's considered an immediate risk. But, you know, what worries me, Libby, is as things change, we're, we're, we're running this great risk of high-income countries being heavily vaccinated and heavily secured and kind of airtight and um, lower-income countries being, you know, increasingly exposed to all kinds of things. And um, the pandemic we're covering in high income and continuing to surge in low income, and uh, very, very worrisome.
1: That's right. It's, it's interesting that apparently today the government shipped vaccines to consular staff in places uh, where they don't have a lot of vaccine. I'm surprised they didn't do it sooner, frankly.
4: Yeah, yeah. And you know, the profile in many countries, and I can't speak for all because that really wouldn't be fair, but you know, I'm in regular contact with with several countries in sub-Saharan Africa, as well as uh, Peru and Brazil, is when the vaccines do come in, they very quickly, in many cases, go to the most privileged people. And, you know, from an ethical point of view, first of all, you've got this first world thing, you know, going on in which we're heavily protected. And then the people that are getting the protection in lower-income countries, in not in all cases, but in many cases, are in fact the most privileged and not necessarily the higher risk at all. So very, very concerning. Well, and, you know, the, the
1: the class system in, in Latin America, I mean, <laughs> I don't think that we have to take responsibility for that.
5: We don't. What we do have to take
4: responsibility of from you know, I, I feel we have not on a global level dealt with this well at all, uh, you know, globally or nationally as Canadians. And, you know, the fact that Peru is producing variants is not surprising because they're so far behind. And, you know, this is why global effort's Really, really matter in this pandemic because the variants will just keep coming as long as there's that much infection out there.
1: Doctor Baseman, is this something you worry about?
3: I think uh, we need to anticipate that there'll always going to be variants that'll arise in various countries around the world, especially in those where the vaccine rates are currently very low. And I think we just have to have some degree of expectation and you know calm around it because it's going to happen and. We know so far that all the variants that have arrived so far, the vaccines have been effective against. And we just have to sort of temper our expectations. And it's not going to be a smooth ride going back to things where they were before the pandemic. It's going to be bumpy with these kinds of news, you know, uh, news coming out from other countries. But it's just something we have to expect.
1: And we have the travel restrictions for fully vaxxed Canadians have eased as of yesterday. Dr. Vaisman, do you worry about that?
3: It, it reassuringly that restriction still only applies to Canadians who are going for essential travel. I mean, that's still the recommendation from the Canadian government. So to that extent, it shouldn't be too much of an issue. We, we should have some sympathy for those individuals who must travel for some essential reason. That uh, now that they're coming back, based on all the data we know about, that it's totally fine to not have to quarantine. Many other countries have taken that approach, or other jurisdictions, I should say. And furthermore, the case numbers in in Ontario and Canada are extremely low right now. So it is a reasonable approach to take with a very select group of people.
1: Mhm well i i mean i th- i think that you're being optimistic to think that it's all uh, essential travel i i don't think it is um that i think canadians are traveling to uh places where they are allowed in but uh they are fully vaccinated they are the only ones uh Carrie Bowman does that worry you as uh, some kind of of vector for an increase Well, what worries me as
4: well is, is you know, who can come in? So we're saying, and it's understandable now, and this is very much a good sign that we're doing this, and I I appreciate that. But, you know, we've got to be clear as to which vaccines are acceptable and which are not, because if every country says the ones we use are acceptable, you know, they've got strong medical reasons for the fact that they've approved them. But, you know, again, from a justice point of view, people cannot move around this world, and whether we love it or not, Lots of the world will be vaccinated with with Russia, uh, you know, Sputnik V, or V as it's pronounced, one of the two Chinese. And we could say, well, you know, they're less effective. But we have to look to the World Health Organization and whatever standards are acceptable. Um, Because, you know, we have AstraZeneca. The Americans don't. And if every country has a different list, it's going to be very, very difficult. And yes, with the emerging variants, it's concerning. But I'm not sure we can even assume that our vaccines are going to work on the emerging variants, other than other. I think we don't know yet, and we'll have to wait and see.
1: Yeah, I guess uh, uh, the deal is, uh, so far, so good. Now, we had this outbreak in another long-term care home in Burlington that resulted in the death of one resident, tragically. And again, uh, Dr. Baseman, it's just, and there are two deaths of people in nursing homes in BC and uh, it's making me wonder, you know, are people there still really vulnerable?
3: It it certainly is possible. We know that from the data in Canada that the likelihood of dying as a result of COVID from even being fully vaccinated is still quite low. So, The way we prevent this from happening is basically just having higher rates of vaccination across the board, specifically with long-term care facilities, the other uh, variable is the vaccination of staff. So, you know, mandating staff to be vaccinated is another angle, another important intervention that has been taken in many places in in the United States. It's been endorsed by many official infectious disease bodies in the United States as a way of preventing these kinds of tragedies, preventing transmission inside uh, long-term care facilities and acute care centers. And I think that's definitely something that we should be looking at in Canada. Well,
1: just yesterday the premier said he doesn't believe in it in in um, requiring it.
3: You know, this kind of a thinking around vaccination and healthcare workers. It's uh, pre-pandemic. It was quite a uh, a challenge to convey the importance of this. And there was a lot of challenges to having that, for example, with flu vaccination. But there is precedent in healthcare. We We do mandate that healthcare workers have a certain level of immunity to other infectious diseases like measles, that they get skin tested for tuberculosis and other things that we do. So this isn't an unprecedented measure. And, you know, if we start seeing more deaths in long-term care facilities as a result of unvaccinated individuals or even despite vaccination, that, that, is, that is just one more thing we could add to the armaments to try to prevent these deaths.
1: Well, it, exactly. I mean, there there are some rules where now long-term care workers have to pr- provide proof of vaccination. And if they aren't, they need to be, quote, educated. Carrie Bowman?
4: <laughs> yeah, education is not always, you know, it's, you've got people with PhDs that refuse vaccinations and education. You know, in some cases, people find offensive. And in fact, there's some research that suggests it, it doesn't work on all people. It 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 in fact, pushes them more towards their thinking. I do think healthcare workers should absolutely be vaccinated. There's no question about it. Uh because, you know, the the rights of patients really do have to supersede healthcare workers. It's tricky with long term care personal support workers um who don't want it. One could argue they're not officially healthcare workers. Um and that's a tougher one and they themselves are from, you know, uh, vulnerable. Uh, it's in some cases, there's higher levels of vulnerability uh, for, you know, income reasons, uh, race reasons, those types of things. So it's a tough question. But I do think, you know, it needs immediate attention. And I think the days coming where anyone working in a facility that involves health care is going to have to be vaccinated. I, I, I think we've, you know, it's really coming to that.
1: I mean, to me, it, it boggles the mind that you would choose to work in that sector if you don't believe in the basic yeah. tenants, you know, but
4: Libby, the word you choose is choose. So, you know, the, and when it comes to PSWs, and I've yeah. worked with many, 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 they, they would admit in quieter moments, they did, they needed an income. It really wasn't a choice. It may not even have been a career calling. They may enjoy it and love it, but that's very different than what you'd see in the teaching hospital, um, where there's a lot of choice for most people in most
5: careers.
1: Well, I guess, uh, yes, that's true. And then, of course, on the other hand, uh, speaking of teaching, teachers, they there are nine vaccines they have to get, and there's no issue.
4: Yeah, yeah. No, that, that tends to work. I do think it's coming. I, I do think we'll get there, and there'll be provincial differences, but I, I don't see any way around it. Because as I see it, the bottom line is its patients have always, always... So, safety and well-being of patients has to take precedence over healthcare workers of any kind. Uh, not putting them at massive risk or anything, but but patients have to be protected. Also, they live there; they've got no option. That is literally their home.
1: Doctor Vaisman, I'm giving you the last word.
3: So, I think uh, we have to anticipate there's going to be news like this about the lambda variant. It's important that, as you know, in academia and in journalism and everything, that we try not to sensationalize uh, these kinds of events. We just have to normalize the concept that there's going to be changes and that vaccination is still the best way that we're going to be able to effectively beat COVID. And that's just the way things are going to be for a little while longer until the most of the world is vaccinated.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Kerry Bowman and Dr. Alon Weisman. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to take another break. And when we come back, yikes, what is going on on the roads? We had three related fatalities within a span of four hours on the weekend. I think we need to talk about that when we come back.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now... Fight back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer
1: Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel, and we have big news this morning. It's another indication that there will be an election soon. Justin Trudeau named Mary Simon. As our 30th Governor General, she is the first Indigenous person to fulfill that role. She is an Inuk leader and a former Canadian diplomat who served as Canada's ambassador to Denmark and the Canadian ambassador for circumpolar affairs. She says she's committed to a calm and respectful workplace. Of course, a nod to overcoming the troubles of the Julie Payette era. On the negative side, she does not speak French, though she says she's committed to learning. So, what do you think? 416-360-0740, toll free one 866 740 And now I would like to welcome Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard Highroad; and Bob Richardson, Liberal Strategist and Senior Counsel to National Public Relations. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon, Libby. Hello, Libby. Let us begin with Karen. What is your reaction to this appointment? Anything surprising? um, Not surprising. Well, I think welcome surprise, I think, would be the best way
6: I would uh, define my response in that um, I think it was very appropriate to appoint uh, someone with Aboriginal history and roots in the country as a way of moving us forward, because our dialogue seemed to have It's advancing, of course, but having someone of Aboriginal descent take over as representative of the crown in Canada, I think, is symbolically significant in many, many ways. And um, I don't think the fact that she doesn't speak French really should be an issue at this juncture. Um, She's committed to learning. That's great. Um, I think the country is wrestling with other realities right now, and being able to have someone in that role, I think, will be a very uniting, potentially uniting force for us as a nation.
7: John? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I, I must give the Prime Minister credit on this one. I think that this was a, a very, very wise, smart move. And, um, you know, just, just, just given all of the, all the tragedy that's been happening in the Indigenous community, um, you know, having, having the first Indigenous woman as a Governor General is, uh, is, uh, is a landmark decision. I think it, it's getting, she, she's getting a lot of, Mary Simon is getting a lot of praise from, from the Indigenous community. Uh, including the um, including um, uh, the leader himself, you know, Pierre uh, uh, Bellegarde um, and uh, Perry Bellegarde. So I think it's it's going to be a good move and, and, and a smart one. And also, you know, I think the one challenge, of course, is that she's bilingual, but but not in French. She speaks English and a little. Um, but, but the fact that she wants to learn French, I think is good. And I think that, that, you know, Quebecers and those who are, who are Francophone will, will appreciate the fact that, that someone is willing to learn French is, is good. And I'm sure she'll have enough staff um, you know, with her and, and in in and the bureaucracy as well that will help her with uh, with any of the French issues that might might come up. Um the, the other issue too, I think that it's symbolic is not only the, that, you know, obviously she's the first indigenous governor general, but a certain sign that we're gonna get into election. I think, you know, if you if you thought that the Prime Minister getting his hair cut and getting his beard shaved mm. off was a sign, uh the fact that he got uh he got this announcement and this uh um, the governor general approved now uh, is indicative. I think one of her first major roles is going to be probably to drop the risk.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, I I would think so too. Uh, and you know, it's interesting. Uh, I I think that was a, a slam dunk that it was going to be an indigenous person. I I mean, I'm sure that I'm not the only person who predicted that. I not, only question is, it, will it be a woman or a man, Bob?
5: Uh, yeah, I, I'm not surprised at her appointment. She was a very serious candidate last time for governor general. I think,
1: Bob, are you there?
5: Is there la- uh, that they didn't uh, so, that so, they didn't choose her last time. She's she's an adult. Uh, you know, she's a <laughs> diplomat. She's been chancellor of a university. She's a, advised both liberal and conservative governments. I spoke to both a senior liberal and a senior conservative this morning. Both said basically the same thing. She's hardworking, smart. She's experienced. She's a serious person. So I think that'll be good. I think the French issue, uh, I think she will learn to speak French. And I I don't see that as a sort of serious handicap or impediment at at this, uh, you know, at this time. So, uh, and, you know, she's married. She has kids. She'll move into the residence. I think the freak show era is over, and uh, I think that is good, and I think we will have adults back in charge at uh, Rito Hall, and it's uh, it's uh, time for that.
1: Well, and she, yeah, she, she she is a former diplomat, so uh, presumably she knows how to handle things diplomatically, and, and we can only hope if, if she can learn French the way Stephen Harper did, she'll be doing great.
5: Absolutely. And uh and it you know she did speak so I speak French and I listened to her this morning and she does speak some French. She clearly is not fluently bilingual, but uh she uh she, it strikes me she will have every good resource at her uh available available uh to her to help learn French and uh, I'm sure she will do an excellent job at it.
1: Now, uh, speaking of the election, John, uh, the polls have the Liberals in majority territory. As you said, he's got his hair cut, his beard shaved off, and he was accusing the opposition of being obstructionist.
7: Well, I think that's, that's, that's laughable. You know, coming from the Prime Minister calling the opposition uh, toxic and obstructionist, given the fact that he's prorogued Parliament and stopped a number of committees looking into a number of uh, scandals. Uh, I think is rich, but, but no, there's no question that, that we're, we're heading into an election. I think that, you know, the fact, there's a number of factors, you know, Catherine McKenna announcing her resignation or her, her desire not to run again when she did the timing of it was, was obviously, uh, crucial. Um, you know, the fact that the prime minister, you know, recessed to the house and, and, and people were allowed to give their farewell speeches, those who MPs some across the, the party lines divide who weren't running again, all signs, including some of the major bills that they rushed through and, and, uh, and the Senate approved as well. All of those signs may be, you know, are a strong indication. But what, what is the most important indication for any uh, political party or any government seeking re-election is the polls. Uh, and there's no question the polls have been increasing in his favor over the last little while. Um, you know, I always like to say that polls are a snapshot in time, especially if my party aren't doing particularly well in the polls.
1: And they are, not <laughs> uh, Yeah, let's um, let's, John. Uh, you know, Aaron O'Toole, he just does not seem to be breaking through. Well, you know, it, it, it's, it's a challenge for him, and it's a challenge for any
7: you know opposition leader. It's like Stephen Del Duca, the same in Ontario, and any any opposition leader. Uh, faces, faces challenges of getting the media time and, and their, and the profile, but especially when you're in the middle of a pandemic, or at least in the pandemic, uh, you know, all the attention is focused onto the uh, premiers and the leaders. So, so the, the Aaron tool, I think, hasn't gotten the right. Um, amount of attention. And also our, our, our you know, our annual meeting, which is an opportunity for, for his first annual meeting, which is an opportunity for most leaders to be able to be profiled, was online. And, and you know, again, it was a little flat from the perspective of getting media attention. So all of that is hurt. But I do think, though, that this is going to be important. Campaigns matter. I think that Aaron O'Toole is going to focus on ethics, is going to focus on the fact that there's going to, be, he's going to build a narrative around this government being entitled, uh, and, and that might penetrate enough that, that you know there's been other situations where opposition leaders aren't known and have become leaders and premiers and, and prime ministers because people, you know, are fed up with the current regime, and that could very well be the case between now and the election.
1: Uh- Bob um, what do you think about Aaron O'Toole and, and I just want to speak to he's not getting enough media attention well they're not making him that available aside he does these uh, press conferences but uh, he he's not made, been made very available
5: I actually think Aaron O'Toole is the least of their problems their problem is them uh, their problem is that they haven't let this guy get off the mat they, they constantly he's trying to uh, to portray a new conservative party that, if I may say so, is is more modern on social issues, uh, traditional on fiscal issues. Well, every time he tries to get off the map, some uh, some genius backbencher brings in an an anti-abortion bill. Then you know there are uh, 63 members, including their deputy leader, as opposed to conversion ther- therapy, which is a sort of a 1970s style thinking. Uh and, and the list goes on and on. The guy keeps getting punched by his own backbench. Forget the Liberal government. They can barely get a they can barely land a punch because his own party's too busy beating him up. So uh I would suggest to you that Aaron O'Toole is not the problem in the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party is the problem in the Conservative Party. And I think this is going to be a reckoning election for them. I think they are going to get whooped. And I think it's not the Liberals that are going to beat them. It's Canadian voters, and they're going to send a very strong signal that it's time that they modernize themselves. They've had an opportunity to do it on their own. They haven't done it. I think Canadians are going to do it for them.
1: Well, you know, that's interesting that you talk about it as modernizing. Now, of course, it was a different party, but uh, to me it's more like harking back to the kind of progressive conservatives that you had under Brian Mulroney, Karen, and uh, if they do get whooped, and the indications are that they will, um, you know, what would stop them from just blaming it on Aaron O'Toole? Yeah, and I think that's what happened, uh, to your point, Libby, in the last election. They blamed it on
6: Andrew Shearer for being a leader that couldn't connect. But the reality is the party wasn't really clear on what it stood for. And that being said, I'm not as... Um, I'm I'm not, I I think there is a chance for Aaron O'Toole to pull this together. I think the reckoning, to Bob's point, has to come from within the party. And it's a real discussion. Listen, guys, do you want to lead from the outside or do you want to lead from the inside? And we're either going to be the government or we're going to be on the benches. And if you keep up your nonsense, we're going to be on the benches. So here's a choice that you guys get to make. And if Aaron O'Toole can lead that party discussion, then I think he has a real opportunity to lead in the polls. Because now, you know, people have short memories. You know, once the pandemic is behind us, it's behind us. And the response to the pandemic and all of the goodwill that uh, the Liberal government has generated by getting the vaccines here, that'll be, you know, thanks, what have you done for me lately discussion. And there's a lot of ammunition that's given the Conservatives to point to, to say, you know, the governance around certain issues has not been all that it should have been, um, particularly with respect to the military, to the Wee scandal, to the, you know, to John's point, the canceling of committees. So there's there's a lot of ammunition there for the taking. But, but to Bob's point, the first, uh, you know, the first challenge that Aaron O'Toole is going to have to face is dealing with his own party. And if he can manage that, then I think he has a good chance to manage the election.
1: John, I mean, uh, you know, Karen, it, interestingly, was referring to the Trudeau government getting credit for getting all these vaccines, which I take to mean, well, uh, you know, uh, that means that the Trudeau government has already been forgiving for the total botch-up of the uh, initial uh, acquiring of vaccines. Um, I You know, I tend to agree with her. I don't think... That will come up as an issue, but uh, do you agree with with her analysis of where Aaron O'Toole is?
7: Well, I, I agree with uh, with certain parts of it. I, I would say that you know we've talked about it on this program in, in previous shows, Libby, where you know we've talked about whether or not Canadians or or just you know any any you said our citizens you know basically given a break to the pol to our political leaders, be it you know their provincial or city or or at the federal level, um, you know, based on their feeling comfortable and satisfied with where things are because as we saw there was you know each premier has has suffered some dip within their popularity you know ford obviously premier ford and and jason kenny and others uh when things were really bad but you know as things are getting better we're seeing an uptick in premier ford's popularity and and the same goes with with the prime minister i think that there's no question that he, he muffled the vaccine issue back in uh in late 2020 i think we were you know, we were three months behind the U.S. Uh, you know, he was claiming that we were getting vaccines at a certain time, and we didn't and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, all of that is forgotten because every one of us is getting our second vaccines. We're getting, you know, kids 12 and up getting their second vaccines. Uh, Problems are opening up. And I think that, that you know, the goodwill and the, and the people, are Canadians feeling comfortable and safe with, with the situation, they will give credit to their leaders. So I think that the prime minister will for sure get the benefit of, of us, you know, being vaccinated and, and the numbers going down. Um, And as will the premiers in, in their respective provinces. I think that that will always be uh, a positive. And, and no matter what the pro- what Daniel O'Toole and the opposition say about how he fumbled it back in 2020, they're going to say, yeah, but look where we are today. And I think that's where that's why his numbers are, are increasingly doing better. Um, but I do think Aaron O'Toole's got a. you know, I think I, I quite frankly like Aaron. I've known him for a long time. I think he's an effective leader. I think that once the focus is on him and the other leaders and he gets the proper attention that he should during election campaign uh, and puts that narrative to the Liberals, I think that, you know, you'll see some shifts in, in, in potential voter bases that I think might, might be to his benefit. <laughs>
1: Bob, how vulnerable are the liberals on these governance and corruption issues? There just another thing that they paid a million dollars to an American firm, uh, out of, uh, parliamentary funds. And that may have been completely inappropriate, but there, there are all these things. There's the military. There's the we. There's the canceling of committees and, you know, more and more indications that that Justin Trudeau is, uh, you know, he can be quite ruthless. Bob? We lost Bob. Bob, are you there? Yeah, hmm.
5: you've got to really stretch to uh, call that corruption, but I will. Uh, we won't get into that argument uh, at the moment. All I'll tell you is what the public opinion polling says right now. One, uh, the people who want a change in government uh, number, is down between 10 and 15 points, which is huge compared to this time prior to the last election. The Prime Minister's personal numbers are up about 10 points uh, in, in comparison to this time in the last election. Most importantly, they're up in areas where where the Liberals need them to be up, which is in Quebec, Ontario, and British Columbia. So uh, I think a lot of this is... Uh, and this nonsense over a contract, uh, with, with the Caucus Service Bureau is a perfect example of that. That is a, a Ottawa inside the Beltway story that no one will understand past Parliament Hill. And on top of that, there is nothing wrong with it. Period. Full stop. This is about the third time the Globe and Mail's taken a run at this story. And so far, there's zero for three
1: hmm And and what about the military? You know, uh, that's another thing that I wonder it, you know, I, I don't know that that is necessarily top of mind for the average well, Canadian. I hate to use the and, word and, average. And the one
5: thing on, on the military, uh, I, frankly, I think the government should have done a better job on it, and it should be a more on top of it. And I don't think it's, frankly, something I'd be going to bat with uh, up front if I were them. That being said, this has clearly gone on for 15 or 20 years. Under three or four different prime ministers, so I'm not sure anyone's hands are entirely clean on this one. But man, oh man, do we need to get a handle on this, and do we need to clean this one up? And the government needs to get more aggressive and serious about doing that.
1: Karen, do you do you think that that a lot of Canadian voters are are thinking about the military? Um, I, I think that a, military,
6: maybe not, but. Again, back to the whole idea that there was an area of the federal government under its jurisdiction uh, with a government committed to um, advancing women that let this happen under their watch. I, I don't think they're going to get the pass that other governments might have got because it's been going on for so long. It, it was a highly sexualized culture. And had this government not been so out in front of trying to eradicate that type of culture, then... I don't think it would be as big of a deal as it is. And, you know, the whole idea, again, that, that you know, the fellow from the Navy gets to keep his job and there's, a, you know, this big backlash, well, I think is ridiculous. The guy went golfing. And as a woman, I'm like, I don't even understand how you could compare a group of people golfing to the sexualized culture in the military. And so I think that the conservatives were right on that one, that, you know, it, it wasn't, it's not appalling that he kept, or disturbing that he kept his job. Why does the minister get to keep his job? Throughout all the carnage yeah. that continues to evolve from this file, and 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 that's not a shot against the liberals. That's about
1: ministerial accountability, and and I think. Uh oh, we seem to be having uh, all kinds of difficulties today. Uh, oh, that that was Bob. Karen, are you there? No, I'm here. John is is there? I don't know what is up with the phones and the gremlins in the phones.
7: Well, I can't wait to get back in studio uh, when these problems will never will be behind us. Quite frankly, Libby. But
1: uh, (laughs) oh, you know what? Uh, So so can I. And I have to tell you, I had a moment this week when Jane Brown, um, our wonderful associate news director and morning news anchor was back from holiday, and she had her two weeks, and I had my two weeks, and, and you know, we talk in my office uh, often, and it was like a, with a start. She walked in without her mask, and I was like, what? Yeah, and I and think, then perfectly legal.
7: To I, I think we're close to that. I think all three of us, uh, I can't speak for Karen, but I know Bob and I have both gotten our second shot. I think, Bob, you passed the two-week mark some time ago, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, I'm, I'm about a month out. Oh. Yeah. Wow, so we, could, we could almost we could almost do this in studio by the end of summer, I think.
1: Maybe. Yeah, well, I'm uh, I think three weeks out, and uh, Karen, it looks like uh, you are back on the line. Karen, are you yeah. there? And, I am, I am, and, and I'm really
6: enjoying the conversation too.
1: <laughs> and when, when did you get your second shot? I got my second shot uh, three weeks ago. Okay. So actually, you know what? We can, we can come back. Maybe it's a little <laughs> soon. Right. We're all superhuman. We can meet in person. We, we can meet in Robert person. Drink. And there's all this <laughs> plexiglass in the studio now anyway. Excellent. Excellent. We'll have to do that sooner rather than later. And uh, John, the premier also seems to be, he looks like he's on an election whistle stop too. Well,
7: certainly, there's election fever everywhere. But let me just pick up on a on a thing that Karen had said before, uh, before she got disconnected, and that is, you know, with respect to there's there's pieces of the puzzle that the that the opposition, be it the Conservatives or the NDP, have to put together uh, to paint a picture going into this election campaign. Because Bob's right, the the issue with the uh, with that data firm that the Liberals are using is inside baseball. All firms, you know, tend to use. Firms like that and, and, and whatnot. But, but this is a classic case where, you know, the sum of the pictures are greater than the pieces themselves. And I think yeah. that that's the challenge for, for the opposition is to paint, to put this, this puzzle together with all these pieces, be it the defense, a defense of fiasco, the, the, the issues with, with, you know his ethics and his scandals and and the WE program, all of that together as a narrative can can be a problem for the Liberals. But with respect to Ontario, I would say that you know we are a year out, uh, and, and and you know when you have a fixed election date as we do, uh, it's easy to be able to count back from June of 2022, and and all the can- all the parties have their campaign machines uh, operating. You know everything is happening in a way that that has a lens to uh, to the election. This last cabinet shuffle that we talked about on a previous program was exactly that. It was a cabinet-ready, an election-ready cabinet, ready, uh, election ready cabinet that, that will see the, the premier going into the election campaign with uh, with more enhanced communicators and, and that kind of stuff. So, and, and I think it's reflecting. His message is better. He's looking sharper. He's not on TV every day. He's letting other people speak of, uh, on issues that re- re- regarding the pandemic. And, and Ontario's getting to a point where uh, the numbers and the vaccines are going great, which is why I think we're seeing a bit of an uptick in his popularity.
1: Mm, and he also has a haircut. Uh, Bob, g- <laughs> getting back to... Uh, John Tory. <laughs> John-, John Tory, like, is he seriously going to keep that ponytail? I think that
5: ponytail will not see the end of the week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I- And and if it does, uh, I I I intend to phone his uh, wife Barb to see if she can make an intervention.
1: Well, I'm I'm sure she has already (laughs) intervened. I I I mean I I'm positive. I'm I'm almost wondering is that a sign that he's not going to run again?
5: (laughs) No, I think I think he's just been busy. The guy's had like a super busy, and he always packs his schedule too heavily. So I think he's probably uh they'll find a spot and I think they'll they'll get him cleaned up sooner rather than later. Well, I'll I'm sure that's, that's gonna Johnson be a photo spot. op. <laughs> uh,
1: no I think at, at one point he said he liked it. Um
5: <laughs> hey. Well
1: I'm glad, I'm glad one person
5: does in the city.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Bob also still with stuff that's not that serious and, and back to uh federal politics. So uh Jagmeet Singh, wither the NDP. Now, the, the Toronto Star, uh, you know, I, I don't generally uh, want to comment on what they're saying, but they're making a big deal that he is a major on TikTok. But it seems to me that major on TikTok doesn't necessarily translate to anything in votes. Yeah, I, I would concur with that, because... You know, it's always nice to have a social
6: media following because then you can communicate directly with your voters. But, you know, we've seen, I think, that they even accept Donald Trump. Like, having that that social media platform doesn't always translate. And so it's great that he's connecting with the younger generation. And I think it's important to have the younger generation be involved in politics and be motivated to vote. I don't think that that's a game changer. Bob? I think also uh,
5: I've seen some of his TikTok videos and this, he's actually quite personable and he's good. I'm not sure it moves votes. I agree with Karen, but I will also say another thing. A lot of what he's saying is absolute nonsense. Um, And there's like no accountability for it. He's not saying how he's going to pay for anything. He's for absolutely everything in the federal government paying for it. He's trampling all, all over provincial jurisdiction. I wonder whether this guy has taken a political science 101 course because he's constantly veering off into provincial and municipal jurisdictions. So uh, I think there is no accountability on TikTok if he starts to say that nonsense in mainstream press. Let's see how far, uh, how well he does with that.
1: Speaking of trampling on uh, provincial jurisdictions, Andrea Horvath was in Ottawa yesterday talking about national standards for long-term care. Even the government has hinted at that. Uh, and, you know, in, in my opinion, we really need that just as a, a, a starting point. Is there any hope for that, Karen? I don't think so
6: to be candid, um, because government has already bitten off, the federal government has already bitten off a lot with the national daycare program, and that's going to keep them busy for some time to come if they're successful in re-election. So, you know, I think that um, every province is going to have to do its own reckoning, and unfortunately, the long-term care experience wasn't shared equally across the nation. And it was more prevalent in Ontario and Quebec, What the, the absolute disaster that unfolded. And so I don't think that, you know, B.C. is not lining up and asking for national standards, nor is Manitoba or Alberta. And Quebec doesn't buy into national standards anyway. And so really this is a problem that Ontario and Quebec need to reconcile with. And they, they need to reconcile it in a, in a, in, in, in a deep, honest way that uh, it, there, there was a problem on the watch of government and they need to own it, which Rod Phillips is starting to do, which is good. And they need to make a serious commitment to rectifying it.
1: Uh, We are almost out of time. So I'm going to let John and Bob uh, leave us with their 20 seconds each. John?
7: Well, as I always do, I, I like to always talk about the positivity and, and where we're heading with respect to the vaccines and and the pandemic and and seeing that the pandemic is hopefully coming to a close. Uh, I think we're all keeping an eye on some of these variants that are starting to pop up in Europe and other areas, which which are concerned. But I do think that that everybody getting vaccinated and and what that's going to look like and offices getting back. To some level of normalcy, maybe you know, in September, I think is all good. So I'm, I'm just, I just, just, I like to be positive about about the pandemic and where we're where we're heading with the vaccines, and and give credit to all of our health workers as always.
1: Uh- That's a a good promo for my next segment. Bob, your last 20 seconds.
5: My last, I'll be really quick. Uh, I think we're going to see a uh, two vaccine, one election summer. So uh, get your holiday (laughs) in Libby and get ready.
1: Okay. (laughs) Thank you so much, Bob Richardson, Karen Stintz, and John Capobianco. And I look forward to seeing you all in studio again sooner rather than later. Me too.
7: Look for it. Well, hi, to- Libby. Thanks,
1: Libby. Bye bye. We are going to take a break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to talk what John was just promoing for me. And that's where we're at with vaccines. And there's a whole new variant that we're just learning about today. When we come back, by the way, the numbers to call if you have questions, 416 740 Toll free, 1 866 740